Welcome, everyone, to Dead Talk Live. I'm your host, Viz. I want to welcome all of our viewers. Thank you for joining me tonight. Hope you guys had a good weekend. I really do. Uh, But it's Monday. It's a dreary, rainy Monday here in the Washington, D.C. area. Hope it's better where you guys are at. If you're joining us for the first time tonight and want to learn more about our show, please visit our website at deadtalklive.com. You can get all of our featured uh, interview episodes, recent episodes, guest list, and so much more. And speaking of guests, tomorrow we are going to have Sarah Paxton, uh, star of the, uh, The Innkeepers, uh, appeared on the last house on the left and so much more she is going to be joining us live tomorrow and here's a picture of sarah so you guys know who i'm talking about this will be our guest tomorrow night and we're very excited to have sarah with us and it's going to be a great interview so put it on your schedule don't miss it we're going to learn a lot of fascinating stuff. She also appeared in Shark Night. Shark Night was a very popular movie. Uh, the actual official title is Shark Night 3D. It was a 3D movie. Uh, so I don't know if you guys are into those uh, shark movies. There have been some really good ones. Shark Night is one of them. Uh, so she appeared in that as well, had a major role in that. But my one of my favorite movies from Sarah, it, it has to be The Innkeepers. That's the movie where she had the leading role in. And it's a creepy, scary, paranormal movie uh, about the last days of an inn. And, you know, she works at the front desk. And, you know, a whole bunch of paranormal stuff happens. You know how it goes. But it really throws in a lot of plot twists that you don't see coming. Now, a lot of you have heard of about The Last House on the Left. That movie has accumulated a cult following, and a lot of us have heard it, heard about it. Not that many people have heard of The Innkeepers, and that is my favorite movie from Sarah, and I'm very anxious and excited to talk to her tomorrow uh, about The Innkeepers, House on the Left, and, of course, Shark Night and a lot of her other projects. So make sure you guys tune in for that. And we have another announcement to make, a confirmation for next month. We are getting a legend on our screens here. Adrian Barbeau uh, from The Fog. Uh, She was one of uh, John Carpenter's favorite actresses to work with. She was in The Fog. She was in so many, many horror movies, a lot of them with John Carpenter. Um, She was in Escape from New York. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys have seen Escape from New York with Kurt Russell. That is a John Carpenter film. She had a big role in that as well. Uh, Great, great, great movie. It's a recommendation of mine if you haven't watched it yet. But yep, Adrian Barbeau is going to be here with us on February 22nd. I know it's still a little less than a month away, but we are super psyched to have Adrian join us. Lots of questions for Adrian. 
If you guys have any questions for our guest tomorrow, Sarah Paxton, visit our website. Go to the submission form. You can submit your questions that way. If you're on Instagram, I created an Instagram story. Just open up that story and I put in a question box. You can ask the questions directly on Instagram or through our website. So that's our upcoming guest for now. And keep tuning in because the list is going to keep growing as it always has. So keep checking in regularly to our website, deadtalklive.com. And also, if you want to get the news delivered straight to your inbox, uh, I've told you guys I've created Dead Talk News. So go to deadtalknews.com, sign up for the newsletter, and you'll get the information delivered right to your inbox. So let me say hello. Uh, You guys have been coming in as I've been talking. I want to say hello to, of course, our moderators. Khaleesi is with us. Saz, of course, is moderating. Marie is over there moderating on Instagram. Uh, So hello to Haley, who's also with us on YouTube. Philip is with us on Facebook, as is Lindsay. Rick Grimes is here with us on YouTube from Kentucky. Rick Grimes is in Kentucky. Uh, Let's see. Rowena is also with us. Sammy is with us. Welcome to all you guys. It's great to have you here with us. Like I said at the beginning of the show, I hope you guys had a good weekend. Welcome to Tina Fur on Facebook. Uh, We have a lot of stuff to cover today. I don't know if we're going to have enough time to get through it all, but a lot of stuff has happened in the last 48 hours. A lot of headlines have popped up in the last 48 hours. And something that came out today... We got to see the first trailer to Godzilla versus King Kong. I don't know how many of you guys were have been anticipating this movie. I have been anticipating this movie. Uh, you know, the battle of the giant monsters. And this is going to be epic. Uh, a modern day film. There have been older versions with Godzilla and King Kong. This one's just called uh, Godzilla vs. Kong, and we've got a first glimpse of the trailer today, Uh, and I want to show it to you guys, and then we'll get into the articles. So, where do I have it? Uh, Right here. Let's go ahead and make sure everything is set up properly, and it is, and let's just go ahead and watch this Godzilla Kong trailer just released today. This is our only chance. We have to take it. We need Kong. The world needs him. To stop what's coming. And this child. She's the only one he'll communicate with. She had nowhere to go, so I made a promise to protect her. And I think that in some way, Kong did the same.
As I was watching the beginning of that trailer, you know, you got to ask yourself, in the recent previous Godzilla movies, he's been the good one. He's been the one to battle the bad monsters. Now we have Kong and something is has pissed off Godzilla. And as we saw in the trailer, they're trying to figure out what's going on. Why is he so upset? And it's the battle of, the as they said in the trailer, they are the last two standing. And, and damn, that's epic. That looks epic. Uh, Lisa writes, man, that looks so good. Philip writes, that was awesome. That was awesome. That's got me, uh, that's got me super excited to see that. Uh, personally, I like King Kong more than Godzilla. I like Godzilla. Don't get me wrong, but I've always been a Kong fan. Uh, and I like how in this movie, we know in the previous King Kong movies, uh, King Kong fell in love in the 1980s. And even before, in the 80s, it was portrayed by Jessica Lang. I can't remember her character's name. And also in the remake uh, several years ago, it's all about him falling in love uh, and having this crush on this human girl. Now the connection is with this little girl. And she's supposedly the only one who can communicate with him. And he has a big soft spot for her. You see, what we've seen of Kong portrayed consistently throughout the years is he's a good guy. He's a big giant gorilla. I would not want to want. I would not want to run across him. But as as long as you're okay and you're fine by him, and not don't try to shoot him down or knock him down or blow him up with rockets, he'll be all right with you. Yeah, he's kind of big. He's gonna trample a few uh, buildings and cars. You know, he's a big gorilla. What do you want him to do? Man needs his space. I've always been a King Kong fan. Godzilla, Godzilla has always been a little touchy. You know, very cranky. Godzilla is cranky. He has a lot of bad days. He has his good days too. But in this movie, obviously something has pissed him off. 
and hopefully we got to find out what that is by the end of the movie. So I'm really looking forward to that. Really, really looking forward to that. That was an awesome, awesome trailer. So the first thing up on our news today, we're going to start off with a little bit of Walking Dead. The Walking Dead's Andrew Lincoln hilariously explains terrible decision to leave the show. And we've seen him joke about this in the past. Uh, I think a part of it is true. I think a part of him, you know, he knew it was the right thing. It was the time for him to step away personally from the television show. But there's also, I have to believe, there's also that little part of him that wished he was still in it. Uh, You know, he does get to relive it in the films that are coming up. But I got to believe there's still a part of Andrew Lincoln that wishes he was still in the show. He was still there to do battle with the Whisperers. Uh, to meet the Commonwealth that's coming up. It's been a while since the Walking Dead fans have seen an episode airing on a weekly basis, though that will soon be remedied when Season 10 returns to AMC in February with an additional six episodes. But it's been even longer since we've seen a properly bearded Andrew Lincoln at the center of the fictional zombie-verse. With no clear sign of when the standalone movies are coming, there's no telling when fans can see him reprising that role again. Lincoln recently shared one unforeseen issue with existing, uh, sorry, with exiting The Walking Dead, and it's a pretty hilarious non-silver lining. Whenever Andrew Lincoln made the shocking decision to step away, uh, going into season nine, his main reasoning was to allow himself a chance to live with his family for more than just a few months at a time between production shoots. Makes perfect sense. But during a virtual Walking Dead reunion held in December in support of the Georgia Senate Victory Fund, Lincoln jokingly revealed that at least one person in his family was seemingly more interested in going back to Georgia than in having Lincoln around the house. While speaking about his connection to the southern state, Lincoln said, I mean the connection that we have to the land, to the place, to the people. Arthur, my 10-year-old son, won't let me take a job unless it's in Georgia now, as he said, laughing. He just misses it. He goes, take me back there. I came back home for the kids, and now they are sick of me, and I wish I'd never left. It was a terrible decision. And we've read that quote before. Uh, It's funny. He goes back to spend more time with his family, And after a while, you know, his family wants to go back to Georgia. So, uh, you know, a lot of changes have been happening in Georgia over the last 10 years. Uh, As we know, Atlanta now is actually a big hub for a lot of TV shows and movies being filmed. And uh, I don't like going into politics with this. 
But I got to say to myself, that is a reason as to why in this past election, Georgia flipped. Georgia flipped from a ruby red Republican state to a blue Democratic state uh, for president and two senators. It's purely Democratic. And that same thing happened to me when I moved to Virginia back in 1997. When I moved to Virginia back in 97, it was a ruby red state. And uh, as the years went on, a lot of people started migrating to the Virginia suburbs uh, following what I did. And as the years went on, Virginia flipped. And it seems to be the movie industry is moving beyond where they would normally shoot. It would really, major, the majority would be done either in one of two places, or one of three places actually, New York, Los Angeles, and Vancouver in Canada. Those were the three big filming locations. Now it's spread. Uh, you see a lot of these states, cities, giving big incentives to Hollywood studios and networks to come film in their state. And when I say incentives, I'm talking in the way of tax breaks uh, and a bunch of other incentives for them to come. Another place that is becoming a big place to shoot movies is Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, I've driven through, I've been to Wilmington, it's not the place you would think that film studios would come and shoot movies and TV shows there, but they're starting to. Halloween Kills was shot in Wilmington, North Carolina. So, you know, like I said, it just exclusively used to be L.A., New York, Vancouver, now it's, you know, all over the place. Uh, whichever state gives the movie studio the better deal, uh, and states are catching on, and they're giving bigger and better incentives, so it's going to be spread out all over the, not just the United States, but all over the world. As we know, a lot of movies are shot in London. Uh, it's going to be everywhere. Lisa writes, uh, I know Illinois did for some of the Batman and Transformer movies. Yep. Tina writes, woohoo, North Carolina. North Carolina, the state just south of me. All right. Let's talk about that uh, Kong Godzilla thing. The first trailer uh, for Godzilla versus Kong adds insight into why the two titans must fight each other in legendary MonsterVerse based on their history. The first Godzilla vs. Kong trailer adds insight as to why the two titans must fight each other in the legendary MonsterVerse. Serving as the fourth installment in the cinematic franchise, Adam Wingard's upcoming sequel will feature two iconic monsters going toe-to-toe for the first time since 1962's King Kong vs. Godzilla. 
I thought there was another one after that, but I guess I'm wrong. After building up the figure's eventual collision course since Kong, Skull Island, and Godzilla, King of the Monsters, the two titans will finally get the one-on-one matchup for soul dominance. And if you guys were to pick a winner right now, who would you pick? Would you pick Kong or Godzilla? Now, I would say when it comes to powers, Godzilla has the upper hands. I mean, come on. He's a kimono dragon that breathes fire. Kong doesn't have that. All he has is just sheer strength and might. And the guy can take a beating and keep coming back. Uh, But, I don't know. It's They're kind of evenly matched. You know, I'm comparing them like two boxers. Uh, personally, at the end of the movie, I don't think either of the two are going to go down. I think it's going to come to some kind of, uh, resolution where they both go their separate ways, not to interfere with each other. Tina writes Kong Retro Man on YouTube, also saying King Kong as the winner. Yeah, me too. I hope it's Kong that gets the upper hand. According to Godzilla vs. Kong official synopsis, Monarch has taken Kong on a journey to find his true home. In doing so, they lock him up in chains before the fleet is met in the open ocean by the current king of the monsters, Godzilla. Though it's clear Monarch took Kong captive for a special mission, the first footage indicates that they obtained the Titan to act as a weapon against Godzilla. Now, why would you do that? Godzilla, you know, yeah, he's in it for himself, but he's always sided with the interests of the little people, and the little people meaning the human beings. With the fate of the world hanging in the balance, Monarch considers Kong their last chance, hinting that Godzilla is the villain of the sequel. And there's no doubt about it. If you watch that sequel, obviously Kong is the one that's being portrayed as the good guy, and Godzilla is the bad kimono dragon. So, I mean, what else do they have to say? By pinning Godzilla and Kong in a new grudge match, the latest MonsterVerse installment will have the opportunity to dive deeper into the mythology of the creatures. Teased throughout the fictional universe, the notion of an ancient titan war was put in the spotlight in King of the Monsters. Through redacted text and cave paintings, it was revealed that Godzilla and Kong are the last two standing from the legendary Titan War, which featured their ancestors battling out. In the present day, the two Titans are essentially ancestral enemies with a long history, and Monarch is well aware of that fact. To stop Godzilla once and for all, the organization's last-ditch effort is for Kong to take down the world's biggest threat. Both Titans, however, view themselves as Alphas. 
All right, so let's say Monarch's plan goes through. Kong defeats, puts down Godzilla. What do you do with Kong? You don't control, uh, you know, a 300-foot, you know, uh, gorilla. You don't. So I don't know what their plan is for after that. All right. Uh, let's see what else we have. Nah, I don't want to do this. Uh, I'm just looking at the time. We have a lot of stuff to go through today. And I think this would be a good point in the show to show you guys a video that got submitted to us over the weekend. Uh, this is a video uh, by um, our creative director, Andrew. It's... No, sorry. I take that back. Wrong person. This is a video, a Judith Grimes tribute by Fandom Plus. YouTube channel Fandom Plus gave us this video. It's a great Judith tribute. It's been out there now for two days throughout our social media. So let me go ahead and bring that up for you guys to watch. If any of you have not watched it, here is your chance. Let's check it out. You like that? Huh? Little ass kicker? Little ass kicker. Staring down the face of fear. Gotta keep breathing. When the negative is all you hear.
Judith. Judith Grimes. That was pretty cool, huh? Uh, I know a lot of you guys have watched it throughout our social media. Uh, it's a great video. And you just summarizes what kind of a badass, badass Judith is growing into. Uh, she's only like 10 or 11 on the show. She's still just a little kid. Uh, I just love that little mini katana. And I'm just dying to find out where they found a mini katana in the zombie apocalypse for her. But it suits her perfect. She has the katana for Michonne. She's got Rick's hat. And she's got Rick's revolver. So it's perfect. Little ass kicker. Want to welcome Janie Joe, who's with us on Instagram, saying, I love your live show, Viz. We love having you with us here. Janie from Canada, it's good to see you on our show. Noah is with us on Instagram as, as well. Noah wants to know, did I shave? Yes, I did. And my whole team knows, it, knows this, and I'm going to share it with you since you asked, Noah. I absolutely hate shaving. It is just one of those things that I dread. Uh, but, you know, showing my face on the screen every day of the week, I got to do it. Uh, as you guys notice, I shave every Sunday. And that's the day where we don't do a show. I shave. And then, as you will notice, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you'll start to see the scruff stuff coming in. Saturday is the penultimate scruff, and then Monday comes around like today, and it's a clean shave again, and wash, rinse, repeat, same thing week after week, but thank you for asking, Noah, and just a little bit of information, I absolutely hate shaving, so much so that before I started doing this show, I had a beard that would make uh, Rick's beard from season five pale in comparison to the beard that I had on my face. So, hope that answers your question. Uh, 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 Jamie says, I really love the video. Cindy is also waving at us. Uh, sorry about that. Lost the chats. Gopa sending lots of love from India. Great to have you with us. Kai writes scruff bag. Yeah, that's that's one way to call it. Scruff bag. Uh, not because I like having a beard. I really don't. It gets itchy as hell. I just don't like shaving. But, you know, gotta do it. You know, if I'm going to show my face on the screen every day of the week, it's just something I gotta do. So I've made a compromise with myself. I'll just do it once a week. And Sunday's the days that I do it. All right. Uh, let's see, checking on the time. Let's go on ahead. Let's see which article we are going to do next. Let's see. Uh, no, not that one. Let's talk about this one. American Horror Story, how Seasons 10 theme can fix Roanoke's mistakes. I liked the season Roanoke on American Horror Story. Uh, it was... The main underlying theme of Roanoke was actually a true story. While it has not been confirmed, the rumors, the rumored theme 
for season 10 of American Horror Story may be what the series needs to remedy the mistakes of Roanoke. Ryan Murphy has kept the theme a well-hidden secret, so much so that fans and critics have bombarded his Instagram comment section with every theory they can possibly think of with the hopes that one could be the answer. According to one report made by Us Weekly, it may be American Horror Story Pilgrim, which is the highly unlikely, but it's still, it's highly unlikely, but it still offers the possibility that season 10 could fix the mistakes that were made to the historical elements employed on Roanoke. Uh, Ryan Murphy's horror anthology is uh, set to, sorry, premiered in 2011 under the regular title of American Horror Story. It was not called Murder House. It was just called American Horror Story. The Murder House name was not added until season two when they decided that they are going to give each individual season a unique name. It skyrocketed to popularity with with its impeccable cast and storyline that wove together together the horrors of the supernatural with significant moments in history. While season one contains one of the most controversial American Horror Story storylines, its impact on the genre as a whole was incredible to say at the least. Along with its soaring popularity came the rise of lesser-known actresses, actors such as Sarah Paulson, who has, because of American Horror Story, has been just skyrocketed. American Horror Story has allowed, you know, for the world to see the brilliant actor that Sarah Paulson is. Evan Peters who's also appeared on X-Men Apocalypse, Thaisa Farmiga, The Final Girls, and many more. Now that it's preparing for its 10th season, the prevailing question on every fan's minds is, what will the theme be? And I'm perfectly content to wait till they let us know. American American Horror Story has dropped several hints and clues in poster art and social media posts about the by the showrunner, but none of the suggested subheadings have been confirmed, even the one proposed by Us Weekly. American Horror Story Pilgrim is purely speculative, and I really doubt that's what it's going to be. If it does center around the concept of pilgrims, it could fix the mistakes made in the other historically influenced season, Roanoke. They have the opportunity of centering historical horrors with a structure that has proven successful over time rather than the one used in season six uh, and that season alone. And I like Roanoke. We're not watching American Horror Story for historical facts. The story of Roanoke is real. A colony in Roanoke... uh, was there. I believe the head of that colony went somewhere. When he came back, the colony had vanished. I mean, 
gone, disappeared, without any trace. That mystery has never been solved, so for American Horror Story Roanoke, they just used that concept to build their story uh, on one of the many theories surrounding what actually happened into an American Horror Story theme. And I thought they did it brilliantly. As far as mistakes, how could they make mistakes on an, uh, on an event where we, to this day, uh, it has never been solved? All that is out there are theories as to what happened to an entire colony of people. There was no evidence of a massacre, no evidence of any wrongdoing. Uh, they just disappeared. The only evidence of anything that was amiss was a carving in a tree. That's it. And if you guys remember, uh, that Roanoke is where Lady Gaga made her premiere on American Horror Story and has appeared on and off uh, since then. Uh, Khaleesi writes, the leader of the colony went to get supplies, him and a few men. Yeah, and when they came back, the colony was gone. Uh, Good night to Sammy, who's going to bed. Thank you for being with us, Sammy. So we just got to wait and find out what the theme is going to be. And, you know, we can... We can guess, we can theorize why. At the end of the day, it's going to be what it's going to be. Well, you know, unless you enjoy guessing and having it documented. So when the the theme is actually revealed, you have something to go back to and say, Ha ha, I was correct and all you other guys were wrong. The Walking Dead actor, Elian Surlovitz, talks cancel culture media censorship saying it is Orwellian. Now, this is from Fox News. I don't like picking articles from Fox News. I'm going to be straight up honest with you. But this headline wanted me to at least give it a chance. So let's start reading and see what this is about. The Walking Dead actor, Ilyan Srulosevitz, appeared on the Faulkner Focus Monday to discuss cancel culture and what he sees as a growing trend of censoring conservative voices in America. Oh boy, this is going to get political. Of course it is, it's Fox. Uh, in addition to acting, Sorolovitz, also the CEO and founder of Edgar Watch Company, which recently put, a, put out a video titled, What is Freedom? A Message to Us All, uh, in an attempt to highlight what he believes is an alarming problem of mainstream media in Hollywood censoring opposing voices. Now, that's it. I'm moving on. Moving on. Moving on. Okay. Ten horror movies with alternate cuts. And uh, there have been a lot of them. A lot of them. There are movies out there, and the first one that comes to mind is Rob Zombie's 2007 uh, Halloween, where not only is there alternate endings, there's a version out there with so many different scenes, it's almost like an entirely different movie. 
so by the time uh, most movies hit the theaters for fans to enjoy, they have had a number of hands involved making cuts that try to make everyone happy with the finished film, including the director, producers, studios, and of course, the audience. Horror movies seem to deal with this a lot as it's hard to please the wide variety of horror fans, especially with too many cooks in the kitchen. All these various contributing factors can sometimes cause issues that can lead to incredibly different cuts of the same film that sometimes go unreleased and unseen or find new life as a director's cut, extended edition, or even international releases that greatly change the film, with some versions even becoming well-known than the eventual theatrical release. First on the list is the original Dawn of the Dead. George Romero's iconic 1978 Dawn of the Dead was the second of his Night of the Living Dead zombie films that helped lay the foundation for the genre that would later include the 2004 remake by Zack Snyder. However, the original Dawn of the Dead was recut by Italian horror director, legendary Dario Argento, with a new score from frequent collaborator Goblin that was released internationally as Zombie and features a tighter, gory, action-filled version of Romero's movie. Zombie's success launched its own franchise that also includes Lucio Fulci's gore-filled Zombie 2. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with Dario Argento. You know, we know George Romero is the grandfather of the modern-day zombie. Dario Argento is like the king of the gore, especially when it comes to horror flicks, zombie horror flicks. He does not hold back on the visual graphic nature of the modern day zombie. And he was also very good friends with uh, George Romero, he, Greg Nicotero, I mean, Dario Argento is a big, big name in the zombie subgenre in the horror industry. Number nine is The Exorcist, the version you've never seen. Friedkin 73 classic The Exorcist is largely regarded as one of the scariest movies ever shown in theaters, though the cut that fans most that most fans now remember seeing likely wasn't the one that was shocked and terrified the viewers in the original theatrical version. Uh, An extended director's cut was also billed as the version you've never seen was released in 2000 that featured the previously deleted spider walk scene and included a more positive moment in the end that some fans felt lessened the impact of the film's climax, but has nonetheless been included in most home releases of The Exorcist. Now, The Spider Walk. 
it was a huge, huge mistake for them to cut that out out of the theatrical release. Uh, in fact, even if you watch uh, the latest release, whether it's on a Blu-ray, DVD, or video, or on demand, you won't see that spider walk scene unless you're watching uh, a deleted scene special from The Exorcist. And the reason why I think it was such a huge mistake for them to cut out the spider walk in The Exorcist is because they could have really claimed it as they were the first ones to do that in a demonic possession movie. How many movies, TV shows, have imitated that inverted spider walk? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Where they're walking on their hands and feet backwards, okay? And they shot this scene, Linda Blair coming out of her room, and it wasn't just a split-second type of scene. She gets out of her room and goes down the stairs in that position. And that's why I think it was a big, big mistake for them to cut that out of the original film. Why did they do it? Did they feel it was unnecessary? I have no idea. But if that was part of the original release, The Exorcist, without, out of doubt, without any doubt, can lay claim as they were the first ones to come up with that when it comes to demonic possession horror flicks. But it never made it. If you want to watch it now, you got to watch it as part of a deleted scene specials from The Exorcist itself. As I've said, if you watch the a current version of the film's release, I do not believe that Spider Walk is part of the movie. It's included in an after-movie special where they show all the deleted scenes and so on. So, anyway. Number eight, Alien, Director's Cut. While Ridley Scott's 1978 Alien's Director's Cut doesn't ultimately change too much of the original story, there are a number of alterations that affect the flow of the film that was made up to keep the proper pacing when adding removed scenes. One of the biggest changes was the revelation of a xenomorph nest on the Nostromo that appeared to be contradictory to later revelations in the series. Some scenes were also altered to make the Nostromo's discovery of the alien threat more ambiguous when the original film teased foreknowledge of the xenomorphs. Uh, JD on Twitch writes, Theatrical alien cut better than the director's alien cut. And I agree with you, JD. And even they... They also pretty much say in this article, it doesn't really impact the story too much of the original movie, but it might it might have screwed up with the sequels that came after the original film. Halloween 666, The Curse of Michael Myers. The Halloween franchise is well known for alternate endings and an infamous TV cut 
of the original film, however, it's the producer's cut of Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, known to fans as Halloween 666. Not to me. This is the first time ever I'm hearing Halloween 666. I'm a huge Halloween fan, and I have never heard The Curse of Michael Myers be referred to as Halloween 666. Anyway, uh, that changes the original film and potentially the rest of the franchise. The cut features alternate footage from the original work print of the film. The work print was heavily altered by the studio to become one of the worst entries in the film series as it tried to make Michael Myers a supernatural killer. The alternate cut featured franchise star Jamie Lloyd in a more prominent role set up set up Donald Pleasance's Dr. Samuel Loomis as the new leader of the Cult of Thorn before his death resulted in further changes. And yeah, that would have sucked. I mean, Michael Myers, if you look at it, already is a supernatural killer. He's the boogeyman. He's an urban legend, which hopefully we'll have time to talk about. Um, damn. We're already 51 minutes into today's show. We're not going to have time to talk about it. We were going to discuss urban legends today. Khaleesi also writes, uh, she's never heard of that title either. JD writes, Halloween 6 of either cut is pretty messy. Props, though, to the producers for trying something different with the series. Yeah, they did. They did. But making Loomis be the cult leader? No. That would not have been good for the franchise. And it would have done Donald Pleasance a great disservice. Number six, Mimic. Let's see if we can go through this list a little bit quicker. Number five, Donnie Darko. All right. Number four, Event Horizon. I love this movie. The alternate cut of Event Horizon exists mostly in Legends and Memory as the original footage was cut from the film's original cut has presumably been lost or destroyed over the years, though recent reports have teased the inclusion of the lost footage in a new release of Paul Anderson's sci-fi horror. And I've discussed this with guests on this show. This movie, Event Horizon... Starring uh, Sam Neill, Lawrence Fishburne, is one of the most underrated science fiction horror films out there. It is scary. It is gory. It takes place in another planet. And it's, it's a complete paranormal flick in space. Or another planet. Uh, I mean... Underrated is not even a right word. It's not. It's not the right word for Event Horizon. This movie should have gotten a lot more acclaim than uh, what it actually did when it first came out. And just a little side note, I saw Event Horizon when it first came out in the theaters. The cutscenes in question showcased a deeper look at the torments and horror experienced by the crew of the Event Horizon 
when it made the dimensional jump to hell, which proved to be too horrific and graphic to pass censors, though fans have been dying to see it in full for years. To give you a little summary of the movie, science has developed this ultra-secret project in space that can basically alter or create a wormhole to travel to a different point in space uh, in a split second, you know, uh, reach places in the galaxy, in the universe that it's impossible to reach. But the, the premise of the movie is this doorway that they open up to travel through actually takes the ship to hell. And it disappears. It went through this hole and it disappeared. It stayed disappeared for years. Until one day, it comes back and they pick up a distress signal. That's when Lawrence Fishburne uh, is sent on a mission to find out where the ship has been, what's going on, meet up with it, and the horrors they encounter once they reach that ship, which is called the Event Horizon, are pretty damn gruesome. So, must watch, if you haven't watched it already. Hellraiser Bloodline. Uh, you know, I don't know. Once they get into the sequels of Hellraiser, it gets kind of hairy. The fourth cinematic outing of Clive Barker's Hellraiser franchise hit theaters in 96, after a troubled production that caused director Kevin Yager to drop out of the production and use Alan Smithtree name while Joe Chappelle reshot scenes and changed the movie for the studio. Uh, so yeah, this has quite a few, I've heard of this before, of quite a few different cuts to it. They are all available for you to watch. Uh, if you're that interested in finding them. Personally, I don't think it's worth the trouble. Number two on the list, The Exorcist, The Beginning, Slash Dominion. We talked about this the other day. They brought in a director to reshoot the ending of The Exorcist, The Beginning. And that new director that was only brought in for a couple of weeks' work ended up reshooting the entire film. The original one by uh, the original director is called Dominion, and the one that we got from the new director is called The Beginning. And besides the main lead actor, uh, all the other actors are different as well. Not only did he reshoot the movie, he recasted everyone except for the main lead. Uh, and like I said, we discussed this a couple of episodes ago. Uh, I've seen the beginning a lot. I actually like it, even though the critics did not. Uh, I want to see Dominion again. I want to see Dominion. Uh, I've only seen it once. I want to watch it again now that I know a little bit more about it and the backstory to it. Number one on the list, and this was... This is another Clive Barker book called Nightbreed. Uh, Writer-director Clive Barker adapted his novella Cabal 
into 1990s Nightbreed, which explored the world of Midian that was hidden in North Canada and filled with monsters that ultimately became the film's heroes after humanity got involved. This is a great flick. I saw this also in the movie theaters. It was a good movie. Not great. Not awesome. Not fabulous. It's worth the watch if you're looking for something to watch. The the book, Cabal from Clive Barker, is a lot better than the film adaptation. But that's because Clive Barker is a genius. So anyway, we are out of time. But if you guys are interested, not just the director's cut. Check out Nightbreed. You know, I don't know if how many of you are familiar with Clive Barker. But Clive Barker is an amazing horror writer with a very, very twisted brain. He's a genius. He's a genius at writing horror. Anyway, guys, like I said, we are out of time for tonight. This hour just flew by. We'll do our Urban Legends episode at a later date. Don't forget, tomorrow we have special guest Sarah Paxton. You can get all the information on our website, deadtalklive.com. So please tune in tomorrow to watch a very fascinating interview. Stay safe. Enjoy the rest of your evening or day, depending where you're located. And until tomorrow with our special guest from Last House on the Left and the Innkeepers, Sarah Paxton, stay safe, stay walking. Good night.